We're going to be in Romans chapter 11, uh, and I am, believe it or not, we're going to try to cover 32 verses here today, okay? So what that means is you guys are going to have to buckle up, we're going to move fast, and we're going to, we're going to cover these things. I ask then, has God rejected His people? Here comes the, 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 that response of Paul that we've gotten to, to, to love. May Gonoito, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew, that is, foreknew, forelove, forechose, as it were. Do you not know what the Scripture says uh, of Elijah? There we go. Good job, guys. Of Elijah, how he appeals uh, to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone and left, and they seek my life. Sorry for the choppy start, but here we go. We're in it now. We're cruising. The big question that we are asking again and again through Romans 9, 10, and 11 is, what about the Jews? What about Israel? God's chosen. How come they don't believe? Why have they not re, uh, received the Messiah, Jesus Christ? Has God then rejected His people? The answer is, by no means. So he appeals to Elijah and how Elijah felt. You remember how this went? The prophets of Baal, the big contest. They did everything they could to stir up their, 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 their deities, which, by the way, didn't exist and nothing happened. And Elijah mocks them by pouring water again and again on this thing. And, and the Lord brings fire down in their view. And he, he laps up everything, destroys everything. Even the stones were, were consumed by the fire of God. And uh, after that, Elijah got really dis depressed, discouraged. And he, he ran and hid in the cave. And it's kind of it's weird. It's, you're like, what is, why would he do that? Well, he was overwhelmed with a, a sense of, of being alone. Where are your people? Why are so many turning to the prophets of Baal and, and, and to worship false gods? It would be easy for Paul to feel this way. Think of this. Paul, a persecutor of the early church, uh, uh, one who was going after Christians to imprison them, even putting some to death, and then powerfully saved by God. Paul says, listen, listen I'm a Jew but the tribe of Benjamin. And God saved me. He saved me. Certainly he knows he's not the only one, but there would have been points along the, the way as his missionary journeys would have unfolded <clears throat> where he would have probably felt very alone. Certainly as a Jew, he would always begin in the synagogue. Every city he would go to, he would start in the synagogue first and proclaim Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Gospel. Many times, those in the synagogue would run him out and then chase him, even violently so, from city to city. Listen to the Lord's response to Elijah and how it encourages Paul and how it should encourage us that God has not given up on Israel. What was God's reply to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. What amazing words. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The word grace that we use so often, it's, it's my daughter's name. It means, in, in scriptural terms, 
unmerited favor, that God looks upon a person not because of any merit that they have within themselves. He simply sets his covenant blessing, his saving grace upon them because of his freedom and his will. So this grace is set upon 7,000 men back in this time, and Paul says, at the present time as well. There is a remnant. There is a remnant. Chosen by grace. There again we see this echo, this theme of Romans 9 through 11 coming out. Who is ultimately sovereign in the saving of sinners? Sinners? No. God. God is sovereign in the salvation of anyone, whether they be a Jew or a Gentile. If they are saved, it's because they've been chosen by God, chosen to be a trophy of His grace and brought to life by God in His power at the moment they are saved. A remnant chosen by grace. Now, this is an interesting thing to consider here. I want to ask a question here, and, and feel free if it's, if it's too uncomfortable, you don't have to raise your hand, but I know in our church we have a, a, a few people who are of Jewish heritage who are believers today, okay? So if that's you, just raise your hand. We want to see, okay? Anyone out here who is a, a believer who comes from a Jewish heritage? Okay. Now, I know that there are some that are probably coming in the next service, but the number is small. What that means, my friends, is that we are mostly here Gentiles. There is, however, even in our little church, part of the remnant that God preserves of His people that He chose in Old Testament times. And even today, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Why are they alive in Christ? Because He has chosen them. He has elected them unto salvation. And there are some here who can say, yes, I come from a Jewish heritage and I love Jesus as my Messiah. Why can they say that? Because God has opened their eyes in grace to see Jesus in that way. So even today there is a remnant chosen by grace and in the coming generations and every generation that came from when Paul spoke these words, there is always a preserved remnant of God's people Israel who are alive in Christ as Savior. So let's go on to another part of Paul's answer Resoundingly, no, he has not rejected his people. God has not rejected his people, the Jews. Verses 7 through 15, Israel's trespass and Gentile salvation. Listen to how he continues. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. And now he quotes from Isaiah 28, verses we just studied Friends, this Wednesday in our, in our Bible study, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says in Psalm 69, he quotes from the Old Testament so much here because he's, he's working to reach those of a Jewish heritage who love the Old Testament but largely have rejected their Messiah, the fulfillment of it. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Hmm. 
The, uh, the elect obtained it, that is salvation. The rest were hardened. This reminds us of the verses we read in Romans chapter 9, right? God shows mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he wills. That, that is God's free prerogative. There are some who have been saved, and ultimately the answer as to why is because God chose. He, they are the elect. He chose to save them. There are many right now to this day, many, I would say most of the Jewish nation have rejected their Messiah, Jesus. God is sovereign in salvation and in judgment. If you reject Jesus, that is a choice that you make that you will answer for. And if you die in that rejection, it is an eternal destruction that you face. Hmm. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And I, I just add this note. The, the idea here is that they might fall forever, right? The, 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 and never rise. Here comes another meganoito. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, this is a mind-blowing concept. I wouldn't believe it if it wasn't here plainly spelled out in the Word of God. Through their sin, their trespass, their hardness of heart, their rejection of Jesus, salvation has come as God has purposed to the Gentiles in order to make them or provoke Israel to jealousy. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? Now, note the last words of this. How much more will, will, it's coming, their full inclusion be? There's a future here. A few things to point out. Two things specifically here to begin with. Number one, God is using Israel's rejection, their trespass, their sin, in turning a blind eye and a stiff arm towards Jesus. He's using that sin to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In fact, Paul himself is called an apostle to the Gentiles. He is sent to the Gentiles to proclaim to the nations, the ends of the earth, that there is a Savior for them as well. Consider this. In the Old Testament, friends, most of us here, Gentiles, not, not of a Jewish origin, most of us would have been often a pagan land, far from the covenants, far from the law, far from the presence of God, the tabernacle, the temple, far from the sacrifices and all of the atoning opportunity that God gave the Jews. Now, by His grace, he has brought salvation through Christ, a Jewish Messiah. Let's, just, let's be clear. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, and that salvation is extended to the ends of the earth. Secondly, God is using the salvation of the Gentiles, that is the nations, to provoke Israel to jealousy. This is an interesting concept, an interesting thing to consider. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow, uh, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Hmm. 
This is interesting. I call this evangelistic provocation. Okay? Now, it's hard for us to consider what this may look like, but when we, when we put it in our own experience, you've probably heard things like this. Say, for instance, uh, you're in the workplace, and you're coming to work, and you know what it means to be forgiven in Jesus Christ. You have been changed by Christ. You've been forgiven of your sins. You've been set free. You have peace with God. You have a certain and sure confidence that in this life and the next, you are going to live and you are going to be with the Lord forever. And so you walk in such a way that all of a sudden the people around you are like, well, man, that's like, what's different about you? There's something, you got something. I, I, I'm watching you and I see you respond differently. What's going on, man? I want what you have. That's exactly what Paul is referring to here. And even more so for those who are Jews to, to think that all of their faith, the whole push of the Old Testament was about Jesus. Isaiah 53 lays this out so beautifully and clearly. The goal here is that we live in such a way that our life would call attention to the beauty of Christ, both for the Jew and the Gentile. For anyone who has not yet bent their knee before King Jesus and said, I turn from my sins, I, I turn to you, I trust you, I embrace you, save me and be my king. Right? For anyone who has not yet done that, our desire is to live our lives out loud, clearly, with words, demonstrating the glory of Christ, what it means to be forgiven. Tell what he's done. So Paul has as his goal, at least one of the goals of the gospel, is to provoke the Jews to jealousy. That Gentiles are being transformed, changed, set free from their sins. Just like their lives are turning upside down. And the Jews are saying, well, wait a second. We don't, we're not experiencing that. And Paul's like, it's Jesus. It's the Messiah. His name is Jesus. There's salvation in His name alone. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Note the, note the future tense of these words. Verse 12, then verse 15. If their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their, not has their, but what will their acceptance mean? but life from the dead, or basically resurrection. Paul shows us what he's going to build out further in the, in the coming verses, that there is coming a day. There is a day. It has not yet come. There is a day coming when God will save powerfully ethnic Israel. There will be a generation of Jews who experience a massive revival in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they will be saved powerfully that's coming so more on that in a little bit but you see it glimpsed already it's he's setting up where he's going with what is to come so verses 16 to 22 grafted by grace through faith grafted by grace through faith Paul goes on to say if the dough offered as first fruits is holy so is the whole lump 
And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And we're all like, what? Okay, let's, let's dig in here. Let's break this down a little bit. This is especially difficult. Remember, the primary audience that Paul is writing these words to is a Jewish audience. So they're understanding some of these metaphors that he mixes together. Dough offered as first fruits. That means out of this lump of dough, the first fruits are given and sacrificed before the Lord, considered holy. He says, listen, that means the whole lump is holy. And then he says this in a different metaphor. If the root of the tree is holy or set apart for God, so are the branches. What is he talking about? He's talking about the patriarchs. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was our call to worship that Roger read read this morning. An echo of that on the screen. Those promises are real and true. I will make of you a great nation. I will take you from among the peoples and make you my own. I will set you in a land and I will be your God and you will be my people. These are promises made to the patriarchs, which means that they are promises made to all who would be grafted in to that root, to that lump brought in. And then he begins to work this, this, this grafting concept. And uh, a lot of us don't do a lot of tree grafting. Anybody out here do this with, like with apple trees or fruit trees, grafting? Okay. No one? Okay, okay. I was, I was a figure. But... All right. There's hope for us. One thing you would never, ever do with an old olive tree when the branches stopped bearing fruit or olives you would never break those branches or cut those branches off and then take a wild olive shoot that is not bearing fruit. The, the, the wild olive shoots are worthless. You would never do this. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy concept. This is what he says God did with the Gentiles. He took a wild olive shoot, cut it, and grafted it in to the old established tree of promise. And all of a sudden, it began to be nourished from that root and bear fruit. That is the salvation He's brought to the Gentiles, and He brought it to us because He broke off the branches of unbelieving Jews. Unbelieving Israel was cut off so that we might be grafted in. He said, don't forget this. Don't, don't think that somehow you have cause to be arrogant over those branches that were broken off. As if somehow we're better. Friends, we are doubly removed from God's grace. And the fact that He would bring salvation to us as Gentiles should blow our minds. Never should we ever say, well, we're We're better than the original branches. I, I, I am in awe. Even as you look through church history, this has happened over and over. People have looked down upon the Jews from some kind of Christian perspective as if somehow they are to blame for the rejection of the Messiah. And, 
and, and, and, and then look down upon them in an anti-Semitic way. That is not what we are to do. We've been grafted into the olive tree of the people of God. Natural branches broken off, wild olive shoots grafted in. He goes on. Do not be arrogant toward the branches if you are. Remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. The call to all of us here who are Gentiles is humility. Humility. No one in Christ can say, I deserve. In the slightest, I deserve. Not, I mean, finish that sentence. I deserve this because. <laughs> like, you can't. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. I don't deserve to be a Christian, and especially as a Gentile, I don't deserve that. Hmm. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is true. But why were they broken off? Because of their unbelief. And you, you stand through faith. The only reason that a, a wild olive shoot could be grafted in is through faith. Not because you merit it, but because you have embraced Jesus as your king. So don't become proud, but fear God. Fear for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note, Paul says, the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, there's a lot of questions we have to, to answer in here. Can someone who has been grafted in through the gospel of Jesus Christ be broken off or cut off from the life that they have received in Christ? Is that a threat that, that the eternal life you've been promised in, in the gospel can be pulled out from under you? Absolutely not. That's not what he's saying. He's speaking in terms of broad strokes here. The Jews reject Jesus because they don't believe and they are rightly judged and damned and sentenced to the fires of hell because of their rejection, their unbelief. Gentiles, listen up. You're not good to go just because you're a Gentile. You must believe in the name of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And I would add this, keep believing. The whole book of Hebrews calls us to this. It's not just, well, I believed when I was five. Now I live however I want. No, it's I believe this with everything that I am every day all the way to the grave. I believe this. I'm his, he's mine. For those who embrace a Father God in faith through Jesus Christ, a Savior, they receive from God kindness. Kindness. What does that mean? Note the kindness and severity of God. Kindness to you, why? Well, through faith in Christ. I think kindness might be best described as the kind of life that we have today and we will have forever. The kind of life spoken of in Romans 8, right? He will withhold no good thing. He loves to lavish 
his kindness and his mercy, and that is most on display in the gospel. Eternal life could, uh, a synonym could be understood as the kindness of God. It's what, it, it's what it means to live. But I would add this. The kindness of God is most demonstrated in the giving of God Himself. He gives Himself to us. That is the greatest gift He gives. So, lest we turn this into some kind of prosperity gospel, oh, you know, come to Jesus and you'll get rich and, and all your problems will go away and you'll never be sick. And that, that's garbage. That's not what this book says. It says, come to Jesus Christ and you will have a relationship with the God of the universe. All the resources of this great God are for you. When you pass through the fire, you will not be alone. He will be with you. The promises never escape from trial. The promise is comfort and presence in the trial. And forever, we will be with Him. Someday, there was, there's coming a day when the trials will be a distant memory. Things that some of our folks are going through right now. How, how do we walk this out? How do we, how do we walk each day out in the kindness of God. He meets us in that place. What Dean is experiencing right now, what others experience as they suffer, is God giving Himself in special ways that others would never experience but for the suffering and the challenge. I've watched Dean grow so powerfully in the last year. God gives Himself to us and sometimes He does so through pain and trial and heartache and loss. Some of you have suffered greatly. It doesn't mean that God is not being kind. The great kindness that Job knew was the kindness of a God who gave Himself to Job. And Job at the end of his sufferings looked and said, I thought I knew you. Paul, <laughs> But now, now I know how faithful you are, how kind you are, how good you are. Oh, how I need you far more than I ever knew. God is not only kind, He is also severe. He is severe to all those who reject Him. He will roll wave upon wave of His wrath and discipline and judgment upon you. Don't make an enemy of God. Hear me loud and clear today. You will lose forever. If you live your life railing against God, you will lose like every single sinner loses when they stiff-arm Jesus Christ and they say, I will be God. I will write my own destiny. I will do my own thing. So continue. Fear God. That doesn't mean be afraid of losing your salvation. It means trust Him. Rely upon Him. Turn to Him. Don't stop believing. Continue in His kindness. Pride and unbelief have sent many a sinner to hell. Be warned. It's dangerously possible to be active in the church and to, to, to kind of presume upon God's grace. I can do whatever I want because you know I, I prayed a prayer back then or I come to church regularly. That is not salvation, friends. 
It's about relationship with Jesus Christ and submission to the kingship of Christ and trusting Him with everything that you are. Never presume upon God's grace. Now, let's finish with these verses. All Israel will be saved. This this is spectacular. Verse 23, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. Note this. The Jews, that's who he's talking about. Even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, that means today largely across this globe. The Jews are continuing in unbelief rejecting their Messiah, Jesus. But if they believe, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature, that's his whole point, if he can save the likes of us, he certainly can save the Jews. Those who have the patriarchs, they have the law, they understand all of the Old Testament. So critical to seeing how, how Jesus fulfills it. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is an amazing verse. This is so helpful for us, isn't it? Why has Israel largely rejected their Messiah? Answer, because a partial hardening has been placed upon them. Like ethnic Israel, a national kind of canopy of hardness of heart has been sovereignly placed upon them. Their unbelief is their choice. It it flows from God's sovereign judgment upon them. They answer to God for their unbelief, but there is coming a day when that hardening that God has set upon them will be lifted and a radical, powerful change will take place. He's going to keep it there until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, how do we know when that is? We don't. But One of the things this tells us is there's a number. There is a number of the likes of us, the nations, and when that number reaches a certain point to the individual, God will sovereignly lift this hardness of heart from Israel. The partial hardening is temporary, which means that God's rejection of Israel is not total because There are Jews who are being saved by Jesus Christ even today around the world. It's not total, and it is not final. It's not final. There are some who hold, in fact, a a, a significant swath of, of theology out there that holds that the church has replaced Israel. I don't believe that at all because these verses make clear. Listen, this isn't political. This is scriptural. I'm talking scripture clarity here. Replacement theology doesn't square with what Paul is just teaching us here, nor does it square with the promises made to the patriarchs that have not yet been fulfilled. God can't just make a promise and be like, eh, I'm going to change it up, do something different. He fulfills his promise, and he will. There will be a massive revival among the Jews. 
And that's coming, friends. It's coming. In this way, or my words, this is how all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer, that is Jesus Christ, will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from the Jews, from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's coming. That's future talk here. It's going to come. This is how all Israel will be saved. So, let me spell this out. There's coming a point in the future. It's, it's right around the return of Christ. I would say tribulation days, and, and right at or just before His return, this partial hardening of the Jews, of ethnic Israel, will be lifted. And there will be a sovereign and supernatural conversion of the Jews to Jesus Christ. Such that it, I mean, it's so comprehensive, such that it can be said all Israel has been saved. Now, let's be clear. That does not mean that Jews who live in unbelief and die in unbelief are, are somehow saved. So don't, don't think that. That is horrible thought in theology. And frankly, it blows my mind that people have ever concluded that. There are people who think that you're not supposed to evangelize Jewish people because of that. That somehow it's anti-Semitic to evangelize with the gospel people who are Jewish. I would say just the opposite. It's hatred for anyone to say to them, oh, well, I don't want to share the only hope that you have as a sinner for salvation. How will they be saved? How will God save his people? It's the same way he saves every sinner that he chooses. He will save them through the atoning work and shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is how they will be saved. They will be saved by grace alone, unmerited favor. And let's be clear on this. Why did he put a partial hardening on the Jews? I think one answer is, is so that they understand very clearly we are not saved because of our ethnicity. This is something that, that, that the Jews have fallen prey to over the years. Well, well, we're Jews. We're good to go. We can, we can live however we want. We, we have the patriarchs. We have the laws. We have the covenants. We have, right? No. We have sin in our lives. We need a Savior. We need the Messiah. Isaiah 53 points this out with clarity. They will be saved by grace alone. That is chosen by God to be saved, and supernaturally so. When was the last time the world ever witnessed that kind of global phenomenon? That kind of revival that would reach across the globe and bring salvation so powerfully and rapidly among one ethnicity. They will be saved because of the grace of God alone. They will be saved through faith alone. That is, they, they place trust in who? In Jesus Christ, the Messiah alone. Zechariah says they will see him whom they have pierced and weep as for an only son. They will see Christ, maybe like Paul saw Christ and was powerfully saved. And they will repent of their sins and they will trust Jesus and Jesus alone to be their Savior and all of this will be to the glory of God alone. So, let us be on guard against 
a theology that would stir us to think that somehow Jewish people do not need Jesus. They do. They desperately do, even when they don't need it, just like we didn't know how much we needed Him until the Gospel met us, until someone was brave enough, bold enough, loving enough to come and say, let me tell you about Jesus. How much you need Him. What good news I have for you. The Great Commission is a great commission that says go to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Our work is absolutely to evangelize the Jews and the nations. Every Jewish sinner needs Jesus today just as much as every Gentile sinner does. Let it be clear in our minds. I have this haunting echo of a moment when I was still just green and in Bible school. It was my first year at Moody in Chicago. I was doing street evangelism. And I, I, I've shared this before. I was, I, was, I was sharing the gospel out on the streets and, and, a, and a guy looked at me with shock in his eyes and he's like, I'm Jewish. Like, what are you doing? Why would you evangelize me? And my response was, oh, I want that moment back so badly. Oh, I pray that that man heard Christ that day despite my utter failure to be ready for that kind of response. Of course you need Jesus. All the more so if you're Jewish because you know all the Old Testament points to Him. Let me show you how it all comes together in Christ. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. Let's be clear about this. There is a lot of opposition to the work of evangelism with the gospel, and that opposition is, in, in many cases, Jewish-rooted opposition. They don't like when we evangelize them. They don't like when we go and, and engage them and say, let me go to Isaiah 53, don't take me there. Everyone always takes me there. Why do you keep doing that? It's the best place to go, my friend. So they may fight against the advancing gospel and even so because the Gentiles are being saved, but may God use it to stir them to jealousy that they might be saved. They are not enemies such that we should ever in any way be anti-Semitic. To be a Christian and to in any way show a hatred for the Jews is totally inconsistent with everything Paul is saying. We worship the same God. They just need to see the Messiah is how they are saved. We have so much in common with the Jews, far more than any other group. In regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The forefathers. The promises are there and they are coming. They will be fulfilled. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He does not say in eternity past, I choose you for salvation and change His mind. He will never do that. The Lamb's book of life was completed before the foundations were laid. Every name written in that book will be brought to salvation. And let me just say, there's a whole lot of Jewish people who were written in that book. 
And there will be a day when they live on this earth and the Messiah in power brings salvation to them. God will fulfill His promise to the patriarch. It's amazing that we're brought into these promises. <laughs> the new covenant, that was given to the Jews. And then all of a sudden, we get grafted in. That was plan A. That was always His plan. But amazingly so. Listen to these closing verses. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy, you Gentiles, because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that they may be shown mercy, so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all, that is, Jews and Gentiles, to disobedience. He wants to make really clear, salvation is not deserved. That's his point. That's the whole plan. No one deserves to be saved. Friends, all of us here in this room, every single one, we all deserve to experience the fires of eternal hell because we are perpetrators of sin against a righteous and holy God. None of us deserve salvation. And God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. One of the beautiful things that we read in the book of Revelation is this. Some from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be saved. And they sing forever the praise of Jesus Christ. That means all. We're not talking universalism here. We're talking all who come and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He has consigned all to disobedience that He might have mercy on all. That mercy is met when we embrace with belief and trust and faith Jesus Christ. So Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, think about this, if we're going to use this metaphor, one tree. Not different trees. Right? When you come to Christ, you're one. There's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. It doesn't mean those distinctions don't exist. It means that there is no higher ground Right? No one more deserving than anyone else. God saves sinners. Boom! One tree. The people of God. All sinners deserving God's wrath. Sovereignly chosen by God and saved by grace through Jesus Christ. Hmm. Response this morning. Friends, if you are here and you are alive in Jesus Christ, I just want to call you to gratitude this morning. Gratitude. I want to encourage you to consider, especially Gentile believers, consider how amazing it is that God would extend salvation to us. <laughs> I was like, we, if we lived in Old Testament days in far-off nations, we would live and die in our sins and go to hell. That we are here today is an evidence of the lavish kindness and mercy and grace of God. The grateful Christian is the Christian that understands what grace really means. I don't deserve it. And yet, He saved me. Number two, evangelism. May this fan the flame for evangelism for every single person you meet. They all need Jesus. 
Every single person you meet, every single person at the workplace, right, in school, in your family, every single sinner needs Jesus Christ to be their Savior. So speak up. Speak up. Be bold. If they're Jewish, evangelize. If they're Gentiles, evangelize. It's very simple. Everybody needs Jesus. Number three, remember humility. Remember humility. Don't ever as a believer look down upon someone else and say, well, you know, of course I'm saved. As if somehow I am more deserving than them. One of the things we regularly experience as believers is this awe and wonder. Grace is amazing. It's amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a a wretch like me. I don't deserve it. That's why grace is amazing. That's what shows itself when we move to people in every situation, in all kinds of sin. There's a Savior. He saved me. I guarantee you He can save you. Number four, anticipation. There is coming a day, maybe we will be here alive to witness this take place. I'm hoping that when the Lord returns uh, in the rapture that we'll be up there watching this take place, but uh, who knows? We might still be here. There's coming a day where God will sovereignly save like every Jewish person on the face of the earth that's alive at that point. You might say, well, how is that possible? Well, God. God. God can do that. God has said He will do that, and that's coming. All Israel will be saved, and they will be our brothers and sisters forever. We will sing together. It's one of the reasons I love going to Israel and touring around and, and rubbing shoulders with, with that rich heritage, that Jewish heritage. That's ours, friends. We're grafted into the tree. By grace. Lastly, for those who would be here who have not yet embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord, hear these words from the apostles, the Jewish apostles, as they preach in Acts 4. This stone, they say to all these Jews in hearing, this stone that was rejected by you, the builders, this Jesus, that's his name, he has become the cornerstone, the cornerstone upon which everything must be built. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. If you're here and you have not embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord, you are in desperate need of saving. You need to be saved from your sins, or you will face the wrath of God. You do not want to face His wrath. The fires of hell burn today with people who have said, oh, Whatever, it's not a big deal. I'll, I'll wait till tomorrow. Today is the day. Listen clearly. There is no one else who can save you but Jesus Christ. You can't save you. Only Jesus can save you from your sins. Run to Him today in faith. Trust His work that was poured out for you. He lived obedient in a way none of us have ever. He died an atoning death to pay for our sins and he was buried, but he was not left in that grave, was he? After three days, he rose. That's what baptism is all about. It's a visible word. 
of the work of Jesus Christ. We're going to have these two men come and they will be standing here to proclaim what God has done to save them. He's already saved them. This this is Ferndale water. It doesn't save anybody, right? (laughs) We know that. That's just water. Only God saves people. And they're going to say, listen, I am trusting Jesus that when He was on that cross, He was suffering for my sins. And that when He died, that death that He died, I died with Him by faith. I was buried with Him through faith. And when He rose, I was raised to new life. Because He lives, I live. And I will live forever. He's my Savior, my King, my Lord, and my treasure my hope alone in this life and the next. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray even now that you would land these words of hope and, and gospel in every single ear here today. Bring life and light and joy. Show us the face of Jesus Christ and the glory that is His. I pray, Lord, that you would, would bring salvation. Thank you for these verses. Thank you for the confidence we have in your word that what you have promised, you will do. We celebrate your good work in Dean's life and also in William's life. And now, Lord, for your praise and your glory, we want to celebrate these baptisms together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, baptism is, as I was describing, it's not a saving work. It's, a, it's a, a proclamation work, right? It's like a megaphone to tell everybody, this is what Jesus has done for me, and this is what Jesus can do for you. Trust him, embrace him, believe in him. So, Dean, are you back there? Come on out, my brother. All right. Man, what a blessing it's been to get to know Dean Crosswhite. So grateful the Lord brought him. And you got that camera rolling, Lou? Okay, good. All right. I am proud of this man. He has been battling cancer, and the battle's been intense. Uh, It's been real intense the last number of weeks. But he wanted to be here today. Yeah, thank you guys. So I want to share what Dean prepared as as part of this proclamation. Uh, This is what he wrote. Uh, When I was 15 years old, I accepted Jesus and was baptized in my hometown of Belfair, Washington. Although I considered myself a Christian, I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus, right? So it, it was motions without life. About two years ago, my wife and I were looking for a new home church. The Sutton family invited us to check out Good Shepherd and we instantly felt at home with all of you. One year later, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. In God's perfect timing, he had led us to this church so he could show his love and support through all of you. Shortly after receiving this news, my wife and I met with Pastor Jeremy, and it was then that I realized how much I needed God's gift of salvation in my life. I asked Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sins, and I received him as my personal Lord and Savior. That day, this was the day I was born again, And now I'm living each day for Jesus Christ. Through Pastor Jeremy's preaching and the men's groups I've attended, my understanding of God's Word has grown immensely. God has shown me what it means to have a real and authentic relationship with Jesus. 
I know that Jesus has forgiven my sins, and because of that forgiveness, I am able to rest in his plan for me, both in this life and in the next. And then he wanted to share from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You even prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. And the confidence that we have, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Good word, my brother. Good word. Thank you, Dean. Why don't you turn and have a seat here? Okay. All right. So, Dean, I want to ask you once again those words that I asked in my office a while back. Have you trusted Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior and your treasure? Is He your hope alone in this life and the next? Yes, completely. Okay. On the basis of your profession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in His death for you and raised to new life in Him. Praise God, brother. Yeah. Amen. Love you, man. Yeah. Love you. Yeah. 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 God is good. God is good. Thank you, guys. Got that arm there. And thank you all for being here. I see a bunch of firefighters there. Thanks for coming today. That means a lot to Dean, I know. It was, it was work today for him to be here, and uh, I'm so proud of what God's done in his life. William Lickle would also like to be baptized today and uh, had the privilege to sit down with William and talk about what Jesus had done for him. William is eight years old. Is that right? Okay. That's how old I was when I got baptized as well. So that's pretty special. Yeah, why don't you stand up right here, William? It's nice and warm in there, isn't it? Like a hot tub. <laughs> don't tell anybody, but when I was a pastor's kid growing up, I used to go swimming in the baptistry. <laughs> yeah. Pastor's kid privileges, you know. All right. Why don't you turn this way, William? I'll hold the paper and the microphone. Actually, you hold the paper. How about that? It's, your hands are wet? Okay. Yes. All right. Here, I'll hold both. Stand up straight and just tell these people what you wrote. I know that in Romans 3.23 it said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that everyone has sinned, even me. I believe that Jesus died for us and three days later he rose again. Now I can be raised in new life with him and so I can live with him in heaven. And that is why I want to be baptized. Amen, my brother. Amen. And Todd is here. He's going to help me baptize William, his son. Okay, William, why don't you turn and face the cross here. Okay, let me ask you this question one more time. 
Have you trusted Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior and the treasure of your life? And is he your hope alone in this life and the next? Okay, say it out loud. Yes. Yes, okay, good. All right, because of your profession of faith, your dad and I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in his death for you, and raised to new life in him. All right.